Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to Concordia University Wisconsin for your support of the Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. So we've got another another commemoration this week, and this one is probably someone you've heard mm, probably quite a bit about. Martin Luther's commemoration day is February 18th, and we talk about him all the time in our Lutheran circles. But one thing that I, I don't think we've talked about very much is his German mass, the Deutsche Messe. And this is something that's that's very interesting in history, but also there's a lot of contemporary applications in our own liturgy and church services. So joining us today is Dr. Joe Hurl, professor of music at Concordia University, Nebraska, to talk about this mass and how we see it today. So thank you so much, Dr. Hurl, for joining us today on the Coffee Hour. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, let, we're going to start at the very at the very beginning. When we talk about a mass, a German mass in Lutheran settings, what do we actually mean by by the term mass? That's an interesting word. That's an old word for the communion service, and it comes from the Middle Ages when the mass ended with the word "go." You're dismissed. Go literally, ite missa et go having been set. And the word misa, which really means the dismissal, became used for the entire liturgy. So uh, the word mass really means dismissal. And at the Reformation, Lutheran simply continued to to, uh, use it for the communion service. So I understand since it's the, the Deutsche Messe, it, it was written in German. Why is it significant that it was written in German? Up until the Reformation, in the Western Church, the Mass was always in Latin. Luther didn't object to having it in Latin. In fact, Lutherans in various places continued to have a Latin Mass for some 200 years after the Reformation. But he also thought it would be great if the people could hear it in their own language. So what kind of what kind of issues did Luther have with the traditional Lutheran mass that had been going on? His greatest objection to it is that in the Middle Ages it was considered as a propitiation, a making up for the sins of the people. So the more masses you said, the more sins you could make up. And Luther said, no, that's not right. It's not a sacrifice. It's not something we do to God. We do for God to make up. It's a promise that God has given to us. It's not a sacrifice, but a sacrament in which he freely gives us the forgiveness of sins that Christ earned on the cross. Mm-hmm. So then how did that how did that inspire Luther to 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 do something a little different? Well, Luther had a lot of things to do and writing a mass in German was not at the top of his list by any means. <laughs> uh, but 
he began to hear reports of discontent and disorder in other German cities after masses in German had been introduced. And he's writing this to try to put some order. He, what's really interesting is that he says very specifically, I'm not writing this to make it an order that other places should follow. I just want to show people what we do here in Wittenberg. And if you want to make use of some of it, go ahead. So this was really a, a, a pretty big deal that he was, he's written this, this mass in German, really mass was primarily in Latin. Do we know of any other masses that were in other languages besides Latin? I mean, this sounds pretty significant that he was writing it in the language of the people. Yeah. In the previous century, some of the Czech brethren, what we call the Hattites, mm -hmm. um, also had maps in the vernacular. But that didn't survive, and Hutz was branded a heretic. <laughs> it, but right. the, even, even the Catholics didn't have so much objection to the idea of a map in the vernacular. In fact, they may well have gone for it in the 16th century, if Luther hadn't done it. <laughs> but now it was con uh, connected with Luther's heresy. So, no way. <laughs> so, you started to share with us a little bit about the, the impact that the, the German mass had and not wanting it to be, I guess, prescriptive. Tell us more about that impact and, and Luther's intent with it. Okay. Luther saw disorder, as I said, in other German cities, but he didn't want everybody going his own way in producing his own order of service. He feared, for example, that the doctrine might be questionable if they did that, or that a service would be poorly written from a literary or aesthetic standpoint, or that people would be confused if every church had a different order of service. And so... He favored the, that all the churches within a principality. Now, at the time, Germany was divided into dozens of more or less independent duchies and counties and cities and so on. He said it would be well if the service in every principality would be held in the same manner and if the order observed in a given city would also be followed by the surrounding towns and villages whether those in other principalities hold the same order or add to it ought to be a matter of brief choice. Basically, he's doing this from a pastoral perspective. Wherever people might travel to on a regular basis, he wants the order of service to be the same. Does that answer the question? I may have gone in a different direction. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that sounds... Um... That sounds so contemporary today. That's the same thing that, that we like to have in, in our Lutheran liturgy. Uh, it's, it's so fantastic that that has kind of held its own throughout all of these hundreds of, of years of Lutheran liturgical history. How did, how did Luther determine who, who needed the liturgy when he was working through these questions of, of worship practice? Ah, Luther actually wrote about that in the preface to his German math, uh, 
let me just read a little bit. Such orders are needed for those who are still becoming Christians or need to be strengthened since Christian does not need baptism, the word, and the sacrament. Wait a minute. What am I saying? Does not need these things as a Christian for all these, for all things are his, but as a sinner. In other words, he's saying the Christians who do not need baptism, the word, and the sacrament are those who are already perfect. Those who are sinners still need them and the liturgy. So Luther, also, Luther goes on to say the liturgy is training material for the faith. It's needed for when the faith must be defended or explained. It's also needed for times when there's nothing else to hold on to, such as when an old person can barely remember his or her own name. The problem with the medieval liturgy for Luther is that it Simply doing it was seen as a good work that merited God's favor, but it isn't there to benefit God, it benefits us. Do you think there are still the, the, those misconceptions about the liturgy today that that the liturgy or even the a, a service is for, I, I suppose, meriting something before God? I think many people do not understand the basic idea of the Mass, uh, of the communion service, where in the sacrament, God freely gives us his forgive, the forgiveness of our sins. If people understood that, we would approach the liturgy and the Mass a lot differently. And when we, <clears throat> excuse me, when we do understand that, how does that then shape how we approach the liturgy, how we approach divine service or the mass? Hmm. You know, when I was, I, I spent a lot of time a few years ago reading through old liturgies from the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. And one thing that struck me as <clears throat> very interesting is how I suppose we'd say high church they seem because Lutherans did a number of things to show the importance of the sacrament. So what, what were some of those things talking about the sacraments? Well, first of all, uh, communion was held every week unless there were no communicants. Individual confession to a pastor was usually required before communion. Now, Luther wasn't so strict about this, but uh, a number of the churches that followed him were. The liturgy was chanted, and that increased its solemnity. Mass vestments, the chasuble, were worn in many places. There were candles on the altar, and a cloth called a housling cloth was held under the communicant to catch any crumbs of the host that might fall. The elevation of the body and blood uh, at the time the words of institution were said was practiced. This is where the body and blood were held high so that the people could see them and, and it confesses the body. This really is the body and blood of Jesus. Now, not all Lutheran churches retain the elevation, but many did. The body and blood of Christ were treated with reverence. Uh, the anything left over was 
consumed and only a single chalice was used. It's kind of interesting because single 16th century Lutherans could not have imagined using individual glasses for communion because, <laughs> well, how do you clean the blood of Christ from them afterwards? That was the problem. It was easier for the chalice. They gave specific directions. You pour some unconsecrated wine into it, swirl it around, and then drink it. <laughs> We're learning about uh, Luther's Deutsche Messe and the, the, the liturgy and the sacraments at the time of Luther and how we now have that in our own liturgy today. We have more to talk about with Dr. Joe Hurl, but we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. We're talking about Martin Luther on his commemoration day, February 18th, and uh, his Deutsche Messe, his German Mass that he that he translated and how we still have that, that Mass in our own liturgy today. So before the break, we were talking about uh, the Mass in... Luther's Day, the sacraments, the liturgy, all of these things that would have been familiar to Lutherans at that time. Let's talk a little bit now about that uh, that translation process and and what the that liturgy looks like now. How did Luther go about translating the Mass from from Latin into German? Yeah, that was very interesting. The German Mass dates from 1526. Uh, he'd three years earlier in 1523, he'd already produced a mass in Latin. And that was a fairly literal translation from the Latin, except with the parts he objected to that mentioned uh, our sacrifice uh, for our sins being presented to God. He omitted those parts. The German mass was something different. When he translated it into German, he did not do a simple prose translation. It was not literal. Some others had done that, and Luther didn't like the result. <laughs> he thought, well, he thought the result was aesthetically uh, not pleasing. <laughs> he felt that the translations into German did not fit the traditional Latin melodies very well. And so what he did instead is made rhymed paraphrase. Uh, so what we would call today, hymns based on the liturgy that paraphrase the parts of the liturgy. So what was the, the result then? What did the German mass retain and what did it omit? Well, it started with a hymn sung in place of the introit. And then the Kyrie, which interesting, interestingly was not set as a hymn. It was just the threefold Kyrie, exactly as it uh, appears in our divine service setting three. 
Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Except that it was in German. Then the colic for the day, a prayer summing up the theme of the day was sung. Everything, I could add, everything is sung in the Mass, except for the sermon. It's all chanted. Then the epistle was chanted. Then a German hymn in place of the gradual, which is actually specified, uh, to God the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Uh, and then the gospel is chanted. And that has, interesting, the gospel tone, the traditional tone which L Luther used, has three different pitch levels. Christ, the words of Christ are sung on a low pitch. The words of the evangelist who's narrating the story are sung on a medium pitch, and everybody else's part is sung on a high. Okay, then Luther did something very interesting. In place of the Latin creed, he inserted a creedal paraphrase in German, and that is in our hymnal as the hymn, We All Believe in One True God. We all believe in one true God. Um, and that's kind of interesting because it's very hard to tell exactly what creed that's derived from. It's not clear whether it's a paraphrase of the Nicene Creed or perhaps a blend of the Nicene and Apostle Creed. Hmm. Uh, Luther did rework a medieval paraphrase of it, which had only one stanza, and Luther reworked it into a three-stanza hymn. Now, after the... I'm sorry, did you want to say anything before? No, keep going. This is fascinating. Okay. Then the sermon. <laughs> now, that's really interesting, because what do you do with the sermon when you have a bunch of priests out there who really still don't understand basic Reformation teaching? <laughs> So Luther recommended that preachers read one of Luther's sermons rather than making up their own because he's afraid that the doctrine they preach might be suspect. Uh, suspect. Mm -hmm. Okay, after the sermon comes a paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer and Exhortation to the Sacrament. Now that's kind of interesting because today we just automatically pray the Lord's Prayer. We retain the literal Lord's Prayer, but in Instead, Luther paraphrased it, and so it uh, kind of said, explain to the people at the same time it's being praised, prayed. And right after that comes an exhortation to communicants, which is a, a brief a message, a brief exhortation explaining what the sacrament is all about. That okay. exhortation is is really great. What comes after what comes after that exhortation? After that is the consecration of the bread and wine, and that's interest. That is always sung in Lutheran churches. It's always chanted, and always in the vernacular, always in German in this case. Even if the rest of the liturgy was in Luther, wanted the people to hear and understand what was happening at that point. Now, this is really interesting to me because sometimes you hear complaints today that chanting the words of institution, that's too Catholic. Lutherans don't do it. What's really interesting is that Catholics have never 
chanted the words of institution. <laughs> in, in the Middle Ages, in fact, right up until the 1960s, they, the priests spoke those words quietly so that the people couldn't hear them. Luther was actually the one who came up with the pastor chanting those words. And Luther had another interesting innovation that people today might not automatically catch, but back that they would have. And the chant that he used for those words was the same tone that was used to chant the gospel. Because as Luther said, those words are pure gospel. Okay. Then after that, you've had the administration of the sacrament, which Luther suggests that the body of Christ be distributed immediately after it's consecrated and before the cup is consecrated. That seems to have been uncommon in Lutheran churches and only when there were, only when there were very few communities. Then there were some hymns sung during the distribution, including, oh, one thing that there what we did not have in this order of service. The Sanctus was not sung. There was no preface dialogue and the Sanctus was not sung at that point in the liturgy. You know, today we can scarcely imagine omitting that from the liturgy, mm -hmm. but back then if time was running short or if they didn't want the service to be too long, especially in winter when it was really cold in the church. <laughs> The preface and the sanctus were the first things that Lutherans would omit. Isn't that awful? <laughs> They're so wonderful. Anyway, so the sanctus wasn't sung during that place, but it was uh, suggested that the sanctus be the first thing sung during the distribution of communion. And the sanctus that was sung was uh, Luther's version, Luther's paraphrase, of Isaiah's vision, and that is the, the hymn, Isaiah, Mighty Seer in Days of Old. And it starts like this. Isaiah, mighty seer in days of old, the Lord of all in spirit did behold. It, and it presents the picture of Isaiah, high on a lofty throne in splendor bright with robes that filled the temple courts with light, Above the throne were flaming seraphim. Six wings had they, these messengers of him. With two they veiled their faces as was right. With two they humbly hid their feet from sight. And with the other two aloft they soared. One to the other called and praised the Lord. Okay, that's all narration. And then all of a sudden, all heaven breaks loose. Holy is God, the Lord of Aveos. That three times, his glory filled the heavens and the earth. The beams and lintels trembled at the cry, and clouds of smoke enwrapped the throne on high. Now, what's really interesting is, in my experience, pastors are reluctant to choose this hymn because they think it's too difficult for the people to sing. Well, if that is the case, teach it to the children first, <laughs> because children eat this up. Yep not only for the tune, but especially for the text, which, you know, you've got everything shaky, you've got smoke, you've got uh, angels flying around, you've got throne with God on it. I mean, this is, the image is just remarkable. And they go for it. When I did this with my children's choir, they kept asking for it all year. And so Luther was like this in general. 
hit the genius of his hymn writing is that he didn't simply describe, he didn't simply explain his doctrine. Rather, he drew little pictures in your mind. Mm-hmm. And he does that here beautifully. Okay. So there are some other hymns that he suggests during the distribution, including, O Lord, we praise thee, bless thee, and adore thee, and Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, and O Christ, our Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. And then after that, the Thanksgiving collect and benediction. There's so much, so much, so many wonderful things uh, in all of the, the hymnody. How does this... Uh... How, do, how does this German Mass come into our liturgy today? It is in Lutheran service book as Divine Service Setting 5. It isn't quite the same as Luther had it. Uh, for example, the Divine Service includes a hymn in place of the Kyrie. Luther didn't do that. He had just the straight Kyrie. It includes the hymn in place of the Gloria. Luther didn't do that. He actually omitted the Gloria from his German Mass. But much of the rest of it is the same as what Luther did. And we, we only have about a minute left. But what else, what else should we know about this? What are some of the things to, to pay attention to when we run across this liturgy, when we sing it in our churches? I think the biggest difficulty that congregations face is how to introduce it to a congregation that is unfamiliar with it. You have to have I think, either a choir, learn it first, or a soloist. And the uh, choir or soloist could sing parts that the congregation isn't ready to handle yet. Uh, It is not necessary to use a keyboard accompaniment for every section of it. For example, the creedal hymn works well without that, but it might help to have someone uh, play just the melody line on an instrument, either on an organ or piano or some other melody instrument, such as a trumpet, to help the people along. This has been so wonderful. Everyone who's listening, go go find your hymnal, pull out your hymnals, and, and look through Divine Service Setting Five. There's so many, uh, there's so much, so much good stuff in there, and how that really uh, relates to our liturgical history as Lutherans. Dr. Hurl, it's been so awesome to have you on the Coffee Hour, explaining all of this to us. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Andy. It's been fun. You've been listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.